perfectly fine. Fine. Okay, fine. 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 You're listening to Everything is Fine in Southwest Washington, where we recognize that everything is not at all fine, discuss what we can do about it, and empower you to connect with your community. All right, so welcome to the show, Tiffany McCoy of How's Our Neighbors, an organization that spearheaded the social housing initiative in Seattle and has become an inspiration for those of us us seeking true affordable housing solutions for Southwest Washington. Um, For starters, uh, Tiffany, how did your organization come to be and what is kind of the fundamental belief you have about housing? Yeah, hey, Carissa, thanks so much for having me and talking about this important issue. Um, you know, the Houser Neighbors Coalition, while it is now its own organization, which we'll get into why that is, um, started out actually as a, a coalition um, in 2021 um, in opposition to a charter amendment that was being proposed by big business, the Chamber of Commerce, Downtown Seattle Association, and some wealthy individuals in the area who wanted to, quote unquote, you know, solve the homelessness crisis, but buried in the, the draft charter. It also would have enshrined encampment sweeps as a cornerstone of our homelessness policy and working in the unhoused community for six and a half years and everyone in the coalition who does mutual aid or stop the sweeps work. We knew that the harm and the trauma that sweeps cause. So we organized against that charter amendment that was ultimately um, removed from the ballot. So there wasn't even a vote on it. And after that, we wanted to go on the offensive to put forward our vision for what we think could actually solve um, and or stem off, you know, you want to be careful saying solve, but really actually make a significant impact in the housing and homelessness crisis. And so we had a retreat with this group of folks. We came out of that very clear that we wanted to do an initiative for, for social housing and drafted it, ran it, won it. And now we are getting ready to go back next Tuesday with another initiative to fund the the social housing developer that we created through initiative 135. So that's a quick snapshot of how's our neighbors and how it started. Oh, that is amazing. So it was kind of like a a, a reaction. And then you guys were like, hold on, actually, yeah, we're going to go on the offensive. Let's do something proactive and actually like move this issue forward to come up with another solution. That's, that's really yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to do a quick kind of rundown of the housing crisis for listeners. Um, and then especially kind of give an idea of what's going on in Clark County to um, where we're at. So nationwide, we had a new study that just came out from the joint center for housing studies at Harvard university, showing that housing is unaffordable meaning paying 30% or more of income on housing for a record half of all U.S. renters based on data from 2022. According to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, people are homeless in Washington. Who are homeless in Washington reach an all-time high in 2023, which was an increase by a whopping 12% from the previous year. Um, And then zooming in here to Clark County, the housing crisis is apparent. We've got people on the streets everywhere. Millennials like me will never, likely never own a home. Um, People are spending way too much on rent. Um, And then I just briefly want to note a recent story that was actually covered in depth by our local newspaper, The Columbian, um, about this mobile home park in our county that's Mm -hmm. full of seniors. It's a 55 up community, uh, many upwards of 70 years old who are living on fixed incomes. And they've seen a 250% increase in the rent 
on their land. <laughs> Some of them even own the mobile homes, but it's rent on their land. Yeah, the land that the homes sit on. Um, since some person named Michael Warner bought the property in 2017. Um, so that story kind of details how they're having to make desperate choices between paying rent and paying their medications and that this mobile home park has more than um, 100 complaints to the Washington State Office of the Attorney General since he's owned it. So it's just kind of a mess. Um, and now they're like at the point of trying to purchase the park themselves and he's price gouging that as well. So that's just like one little snapshot of like the insane state of affairs, I guess. Um, and then also we just had about 90 of our own residents um, from Clark County who made their way up to Olympia to beg our state senator, Annette Cleveland, for this rent stabilization bill in the legislature. Um, and then she went ahead and killed the bill and just died yesterday. So and then at the same time, like our local government here, they're encouraging more population growth and seemingly trying to attract a particular demographic, I would say, um, to move here while those of us who already live here are struggling. Um, so yeah, that's just a big, the big rundown of where we're at and the, the state of the housing issue. And then as far as the solutions being offered, the main mantra is supply and demand. We just need to expand the housing stock. And when we have more housing and supply is up, the price will go down. Um, so yeah, that's you know one of the solutions our local government is pursuing, using this as an affordable housing solution. So my question to you, Tiffany, is will you address the supply and demand concept? Why does it seem to never work the way that developers and politicians tell us it will? Yeah, excellent question, and thanks for laying um, out. Yeah, specifically, just like the the community in which you're coming from, what's what's happening very very similar to what's happening here in in Seattle and nationwide. Um, but yeah, wh why the supply demand um, argument or theory doesn't you know ever pan out um, is because at the end of the day, we have two ways of approaching housing um, citizens in this country. One is the current affordable housing mechanism, which is really restricted and dictated by the Housing and Urban Development Department at the federal government, HUD, I'll be using for short going forward. Um, and under HUD, you can only be serving the, the lowest income individuals, um, and that is through public housing authorities, which by the way, are also hamstringed from ever meeting the scale of our need because of something called the Fair Cloth Amendment. Um, and then we have all of these different market incentives to, you know, incentivize affordable housing development by giving tax credits to wealthy individuals to make a profit off of affordable housing. So we have HUD, we have great affordable housing providers, but just to be very, very clear, they're restricted and constrained so much by HUD. So that's the one way. And that, that's usually only folks that are 60 or 80 percent of the area median income and below. The other way that we house citizens in the United States is through the private market. The private market at the end of the day is about creating a profit. Certain certain buildings, certain unit sizes, certain family size buildings won't go forward because they are not going to be profitable enough for those investors and real estate firms to invest in. So that's it. So under that guise, you either lobby like hell at the federal government level to change all these rules. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be spending any of my time lobbying Congress or HUD or any of those departments. Um, I'll probably stop doing activism if that's the case, or we try to do these, you know, market, market 
dampening um, efforts, like the rent stabilization bill you're talking about, that's tremendous. Like that would be incredibly helpful, but we know how strong the lobby is against that year in and year out. Um, so that's it. And the beauty of recognizing that and talking about it that clearly is then we can start looking at what do we need to do in order to address this crisis? And that's where social housing comes in. And that's where this idea of housing not, be a, not being a commodity, not being an asset on a balance sheet, not being something to make a profit off of or to you know be able to retire on. Um, that is where this idea and this philosophy even comes in. And that's what countries all across the world have done in order to house their citizens, because they know those two other ways are not going to be sufficient if we're honestly trying to address the crisis. So that's getting into like, not just about supply, but also like intentional development, intentional growth, intentional housing. And we don't have that in the other two spheres that I talked about earlier. So yes, there is this idea, you know, in the predominant um, narrative that if we just get rid of zoning even, or if we get rid of like design review or streamlining permitting, that just that alone, by increasing the supply, rents will fall. And we know that that is not the case overall. There might be a cooling effect, but, in the 10 years, 20 years, rents are gonna increase again because housing is still seen as a commodity. It is still seen as an asset on the balance sheet. So until you remove that and actually put it in the lane of being a human right, something that everyone needs, we're going to continue to see these ups and downs and volatility in the housing market. So yeah, so you just touched on decommodified housing is not new. This is something that is done in other countries is what you're saying? Yes, it is an internationally proven model for over 100 years across the globe. <laughs> okay, that is great to hear because I could just imagine naysayers being like, this yeah. is a new idea. We can't all oh, this radical, insane, progressive idea to, you yes. know, or not make profit. Being socialism. So if, if people are cringing at just that idea, but like everything else, please instead use in your brain municipal housing. Um, if that's what's going to be helpful going forward. Okay, yeah, we we'll do a little rewording, but mm -hmm. same same concept. Okay, and then yeah, just touching on also the the other you know the second most the second most solution offered at least as far as I've seen is offering tax breaks for developers if they promise to do like a small percentage of the housing stock affordable. And then the question is what even is affordable there doesn't ever seem to be a commitment to like an actual equation of what is affordable so yeah like were the, there similar housing solutions being offered in seattle um and and yeah what's your argument as to why those don't work or are, can they be part of the solution i don't know <laughs> yeah yes no so we want to be very clear like from house our neighbors it is that we are a yes and approach we need affordable housing we need our nonprofit partners, we need community land trusts, and we need social housing and actually to actually meet the scale of our need. Because right now, if we're honest with ourselves and the public, we do not have a plan to address our affordability crisis at scale. No level of government does because we are confined by these two options. So when it gets into like tax credits or incentives for the private market, that is still arguments coming from this kind of like monolithic idea that only the private market is going to meet our need. And I'm asking your viewers and just people in general to start trying to chip away at this like idea, this like really dominant narrative that it, the private market, we just have to incentivize it, give it more money, and then it'll meet our need. That's not going to happen. We have 
over 100 years in this country of seeing the complete opposite of that. Um, so those those serve a purpose, especially getting like folks that are unhoused right now off the street really, really quickly, um, providing deep rental subsidies to folks that are in the zero to 30, zero to 50% area media income. Those are really important tools. But imagine if Section 8 vouchers, for instance, which mostly go to private landlords, mostly go to market rate developments. So that's public money that is being transferred to a private entity in order to provide housing. Imagine if those public dollars were instead going into a public, a social, a municipal housing agency, and then providing that housing that is also going to be affordable forever. Because something else about the affordability mandates that we have that are again set down by HUD is that you only have to keep units affordable for 30 years under the biggest tax credit program, the low-income housing tax credit. As if after 30 years, we will not need that affordable housing stock on the market anymore. Or in the state of Washington, we also have the, the multifamily tax exempt program. I don't know maybe what Vancouver or Clark County has locally. We have also this mandatory housing affordability program, but all of these have, it's called an affordability covenant. They have a time limit. There's a stopwatch that starts from the building and opening of that unit to its demise. And after that time, that can go back onto the private market. So those play a role, but if we're looking at longevity and stability and the building up of a housing stock that is for the public good, those are not going to meet the need. How How is the rent exactly determined for this social housing? And then, yeah, how do you guarantee it's permanently affordable? Yes, so great question. So in Initiative 135 in Seattle, and also just to be clear with viewers, um, like our definition, our working definition of what social housing is, is that it is housing that is removed from market speculation. It is available to all. It is permanently affordable and publicly owned in perpetuity. So by making sure that this is a public asset, this is a public good, and it isn't going to be sold off onto the private market later, that is how we ensure permanent affordability. Um, also just with the ideology of what the housing is there to, to provide. Um, and then can you just go through the other question, Carissa, again? Well, just, yeah, how is the rent determined and how do you yeah. guarantee it's permanently affordable? Yeah. Yeah, so the rent is determined by, we have in the Initiative 135 charter that it shouldn't be more than 30% of your income. Um, and we are going to have much broader income levels that we do in current affordable housing. So how we ensure that folks in 0 to 30% and 31 to 50% AMI are able to only pay 30% of their income is the developer intentionally looks at this building, building A. Let's say building A has $100,000 it needs to pay uh, a month in operations, maintenance, and the loan balance and paying off construction costs. Yes, that's incredibly low, but just for ease, let's say $100,000. So now the developer's like, okay, those are the costs that we need to make sure that we're able to pay every month. And now what income breakdown do we need in our, let's say, 100-unit building in order to make sure that we're paying our bills? Just like every individual person in their household looks at how much they need to raise a month in order to spend, it's the same for social housing. I mean, it is different in other countries because they have different social safety nets than we have in the United States, but how like Montgomery County, Maryland, which is one of our national examples of a social housing developer, they do it as just like this. You include market rate units in the building, but it is a publicly owned and perpetuity building. So it's not like private development owns 80% of the building and 20% is owned by a nonprofit. 
No, the entire building, the land underneath that building is owned by the public, owned by a social housing developer. So that's how you ensure that as well, is that um, just like that guarantee of publicly owned in perpetuity. Okay, so then looking at your four pillars of social housing um, on your website, um, I found the cross-class communities piece interesting, and I think you kind of just touched on that. But so the so the social housing is available to all, even moderate to high income households. And then what? Yeah, what's the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so in affordable housing right now, and one of the one of the big reasons that like nonprofits who run affordable housing after you know thirty or fifty years have to sell the building is because those tax credits run out, those um, rent subsidies run out. So then they're unable to make the building pencil is the term. They're unable to pay their bills in order to keep the building you know, up. So they have to sell it because all of those rent, all of those subsidies have run out. Because they can only serve folks that are to 60% AMI or to 80% AMI. So they are hamstrung from the beginning from being able to like sustain the building after those subsidies run out. In social housing, which is income blind, you have folks that are making more money who are able to deeply cross subsidize those at the lower end in order to make the building pencil, in order to make it pencil for the term of the building, you know, and, and to renovate the building so it stays in the public housing stock forever. So that's how that is insured. I think we already touched oh, and Carissa, on Oh, I'm sorry, one more thing on that too. Like, I'm really hoping in my lifetime that we can get away from this idea as a society that like public dollars should only going to those in the most need. We have public dollars that are going into streets, that are going into schools, that are going into public stadiums, whether I agree with that or not. But we have public dollars that go to benefit the greater good. And that's the same way that we should think about with housing. We right now are, a lot of affordable housing providers are so adamant that those dollars should only be going to those in the most need. But what that is doing at the end of the day is solidifying this idea of segregating people out based on their incomes, that people that are in these income brackets only need to be living together. And the negative ripple of, of effect of that is very prevalent in our school system, where you have some schools in wealthier areas with higher property taxes that have better education systems than those who are in lower um, property tax areas. We, they're called low opportunity zones or high opportunity zones. So imagine if we got away from this idea of needing to segregate people out based on their income and we had broad incomes within each of our multifamily buildings and then all of that wonderful tax revenue and tax space is going into the schools, the libraries, small businesses, community centers. That's something else that is like really inspiring and exciting about social housing. That is beautiful. I mean, yeah, that's that's what I was hoping with this with this conversation is to broaden people's horizons and imagine <laughs> new mm -hmm. solutions in a new world where, yeah, we're not just playing this game that just obviously doesn't work and has yeah. not for a long time. Yeah. So this initiative 135 just passed almost exactly a year ago on Valentine's Day of 2023. Mm -hmm. Where are you at with implementation? Yeah. Yeah, so as you said, we won by a 14-point margin in a special election last February on Valentine's Day. And then what needed to happen was the governing board was needing to be sat. So it's a 13-member governing board for the social housing developer, seven of which are renters. It was very important to us to actually imbue also like renter power and renter voice and input in this housing. So they, they form a majority on the governing board. And each of the units that are going to be produced in the future 
have resident councils. We wanted to make sure that there was top-down printer input and voice and, and bottom-up as well. Um, so those are all, all sat. They've been having their monthly meetings. And right now they're talking with um, hiring firms to hire the CEO and the CFO, the first, sorry, the chief executive officer and the chief financial officer, the first two positions. Um, and we required in Initiative 135 that there was 18 months of in-kind support from the city to make sure that, you know, they didn't kind of stagnate to not have the resources to get started as a brand new social housing developer. But that it doesn't include a funding source, and it didn't include that on purpose. And that's because, one, under the Washington State Constitution, public development authorities do not have taxing authority. So if we were to give the social housing developer taxing authority, that would be a really easy way for the opponents to get it kicked off. And the second is the single subject uh, rule in the state of Washington. So unlike Congress, where you can have a bill that's talking about education and then also like water quality or weapons, you know, that's not how we can do initiatives in the in the state of Washington. It has to follow one subject. So that's the two reasons we didn't include I-135 with revenue. But at the beginning of next week, we will be filing our next initiative with the Seattle City Clerk to fund the social housing developer. Um, we're looking at about $53 million for it uh, annually to be able to bond on on the future to start creating social housing. And I say create because the developer has the ability to acquire properties. So there are some affordable housing buildings that are for sale right now, and it could go and buy those if it had the money to do so. And then, you know, in the future, it can construct new new buildings. So I say, I say create very purposely because this can show really rapid results because of the ability to acquire as opposed to like the years and years of construction that's gonna take place. So that's where we are. The governing board is excellent, has some solid people on there that are really excited and we know that the public is just desperate because as you said at the top, like every year that we're not addressing this crisis at scale, like more folks are becoming unhoused and more black, brown and low income folks are being priced out of our cities and having to travel tremendous amounts in order to you know, work and then not having time to decompress or spend time with families. So this is very urgent for us. Absolutely, absolutely. I know it feels like it's like snowballing. Um, yeah, yeah. So on your website, among many things, um, you also noted that decommodified de housing can combat the climate emergency. I was curious about that. How, how so? Yes. Yeah, so in the Initiative 135 with the social housing developer, we've actually mandated that all new buildings have to be built to passive house standards. So we are in the climate crisis. It is not comfortable to say that or to admit that I have a almost five-year-old terrifies me, but it is here. So this idea that we can keep kicking the can down the road on building emissions, for example, is not something that we could embrace as a coalition. So with the ability to do this in the initiative, we've mandated Passive House. And what's really cool about Passive House, besides it being, um, I believe, carbon neutral, is that it is a complete sealed building envelope. And not to bore you more on that, why that is important is because for us in the Northwest, fire, well, wildfire season is a reality. Mm -hmm. um, and not everyone has the ability to pay for air purifiers or to be in high quality housing that doesn't have leaks and drafts. But in a passive house building, the envelope is completely sealed and it is already built to ventilate air that comes in. So these buildings alone will be filtering out um, pollution and wildfire smoke in those seasons. So that was really important to us to put forward. 
Um, building emissions, I believe in the city of Seattle account for like 30% of our CO2 emissions annually. So that's a sizable, sizable chunk. Um, and so that is a way that we can bring our carbon footprint down is through our buildings and our building code. And the other big thing for like social housing um, addressing the climate crisis is getting away from this reliance on vehicles. To be very clear, I take public transit and I also very much rely on my vehicle because I have a young kid and we do not have a built out public transit system that is sufficient. Um, we do not have high speed rail between Seattle, Vancouver and Portland. I hope we do in my lifetime, but we are so reliant on cars in order to travel from home to work. And again, because people are being priced out of the places that they work every single year. And so that is massive pollution. Our top CO2 emissions, I think, as a as um, the city, maybe even a state, like the highest, one of the highest is, is car emissions. So like by building neighborhoods and communities that are walkable, that you can leave your house and go fill your prescription, go pick up groceries, go pick up dinner, pick up your kid, go to work, just like all through public transit. That is also what we're trying to build out through this. And by having housing and communities that are able to curb our reliance on cars, um, that's a huge part of our organization as well. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. So it's like the whole shebang. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is. Yeah, amazing. just like they do in like all of these other parts of of the world. You know, the, some of the top models of social housing are, are Vienna, of course, um, Singapore as well. Hong Kong is starting to. New Zealand is starting to. New Zealand is a great example because they just went with like, oh, let's upzone everywhere. You know, that'll be like the supply argument, and that definitely had a cooling effect, but some of the more the stronger um, data around the cooling effect on the private market is by building up social housing, by building up a public sector of housing that is actually able to, you know, cool prices permanently um, is really important. But yeah, all of these places are also really focused um, on public transport and building out neighborhoods and communities. So like social housing for us is a philosophy and it's not just about producing units of housing. It is about producing neighborhoods and communities where people can grow in place and not be priced out and communities can stay together if they want to and not be completely disbanded every year because of rent increases. So as far as I understand, rent control is illegal according to state law. Would you see rent control as another another complementary housing solution um, and do you know if there's any momentum for that? I mean, I know we just had the rent stabilization. Um, and yeah, just what are your thoughts generally? Yeah, so I can speak to the Vienna example just because I have I have been there. I've been on a delegation there and I'm going again in, in May because it is just such an outstanding um, model. But they there, so not only does social housing, because again, like at least half of their housing stock there is social housing they've been doing it for 100 years 220,000 residents in Vienna live in social housing so because there's that strong public sector that has a direct cooling effect on the private market the private market is now having to compete with their municipal housing program there they can't just charge whatever they want to because people are desperate and they have to pay it because people have options they have the option to go and spend that money instead on a social housing flat or in a, they call them limited profit corporations they don't call them nonprofit. But also at the federal level, so at the country level in Austria, they do have rent control. They have it linked to, to CPI, so to the consumer price index. 
Um, so they have all of these different ways that they are trying to manage and regulate the private market from just going off the rails and gouging as much as they can. And the most clear example we see of that is through the pandemic and through the past like big hike in inflation. That was all about price gouging consumers. So anyways, that's an aside. But yes, I do see that as working in tandem. Absolutely. And especially because social housing, we only have a developer here in Seattle. We don't in the rest of the state. That's like a goal in the future for the organization. But we need relief now. So yes, rent stabilization is critical. But the lobby against it is so strong. And I don't know that Democrats in the state are strong enough to fight back against that, especially when you have like these Brian Haywood initiatives coming down or X, Y, and Z. Like we need a movement, I think, in order to make that happen. But the beauty also of social housing is like that's already embedded into the housing as a principle, because again, it's about providing a public good, not about extracting profit. That's amazing. So what advice do you have for anyone listening about how to achieve social housing in in our area in Clark County or Southwest Washington? Yeah, <laughs> I, I have an answer. That's just use your model and, <laughs> and try it here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah would, would love that. And, and so like I talked about, you know, very briefly, Carissa, like why House Our Neighbors is an organization now? Why didn't we stay as a coalition? You know, I was working at, um, maybe you're familiar with Street Roots in Portland. It's a street paper that folks yeah. were on house. Or, so I worked at the equivalent of that in Seattle at Real Change for the past six and a half years. And that's where the coalition came from. Um, but we started, we, we separated out and created as an org because social housing requires a political movement. In Vienna, it was after the First World War. And it was a social democratic party pushing this because of the awful and really horrific like housing and public health conditions. Um, the, what was it, typhus, typhoid was like called the Viennese disease. Like it was, it was in Vienna, like really, really prevalent. So like it was a political movement that created a social housing program. Also in Singapore and in Britain, even in British council housing, like and just because we passed initiative 135 doesn't mean that now everything is going to unfold beautifully and social housing is going to happen and no problems we have significant battles we have significant um, political opposition people are still so overly reliant on the on the private market so we are here to make sure that that political movement stays and if the social housing developer ever deviates from the charter we will also be there to call that out um, so that is the project, but also what's really, really rad in the last two years is we've had so many groups from around the country reach out to us to ask for advice because they are trying to push their own social housing program programs because people know that what we're doing right now is insufficient. So we've started um, a quarterly national grassroots call. So like we had folks on from St. Petersburg, Florida, from Bozeman, Montana, from San Diego, California, from Denver, and we just added someone from D.C. So if folks are interested in starting that or just joining that to get some ideas for your region, like please, please reach out. My email is just Tiffany, T-I-F-F-A-N-I at houseourneighbors.org. But it's really about getting together with folks and either looking at the initiative system because we do live in Washington and there's so much latitude with public development authorities. Or if you have like really strong relationships with people that are in power, going that route there are some areas that are able to do that through their state legislatures. Like we're really connected with Senator Chang in Hawaii and Assemblymember Alex Lee in California. And it's tremendous that they're able to use their positions to advance these um, ideas. But we did not want to wait on our elected officials to do this, even though we live in Seattle, which is like, argue, 
you know, perceived as very, very progressive. So it's just like not waiting also for people in power to save us because no one in power is going to save us. We are going to save us. So that is our philosophy. But if you can't do it, the elected route, I mean, ballot initiatives take a tremendous amount of work, too. I know. And then especially like putting all our energy in trying to elect someone that will replace that yeah. person. And then, you know, if, if that energy could be put put somewhere else on an on an initiative, like. I think that's that's, uh, you know, that's going to be more expedient and, and and limited energy, way better spent. So, yeah, I totally yeah. agree with you there. And then um, what is there is there like. I don't know. I'm just trying to think like because I want to actually send this conversation to some of our local decision makers. Like, is there just I don't know, a general like statement you would like something you would want to say to them about like giving this a chance or um, just a call to try something different? Yeah, you know, the, the thing that I always say and will continue to say, and especially to lawmakers and they don't have to answer, you know, it's maybe putting them on the spot, but just like ask yourself if there is a plan to solve the affordable crisis at scale, not just a couple thousand units every 10 years, not just a little bit more money into like rental relief. Please don't get me wrong. Those are deeply important. Keep doing those. But is there a plan? No, there is not. If there is, please prove me wrong. I would be really happy to be proved wrong. But it's not just that them as a failure, like federal government doesn't have a plan. The state government doesn't have none of our none of our municipalities have a plan. We need another tool. Let's talk about this other tool and how it can fit into your specific jurisdiction or area or program. And again, this is an internationally proven model. And you just like your constituents deserve the opportunity to have a different choice and a different path. Wonderful. That is so wonderful. This has just been so amazing, by the way. You are so knowledgeable. I just, yeah, you just, you're giving me faith in humanity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris, I, I feel that so much. This coalition, like, gave me such a morale boost and, like, so much, uh, you know, just, like, will to go on in this space, especially with the pandemic and, like, the presidency and just, like, the mess of Congress getting anything done, regardless of what party you affiliate with, like these really local actions with people who care, who are invested in solutions is deeply gratifying. Like it's what keeps me going. It's what makes me not, you know, you know, roll into a ball and think about like the climate crisis and my kid. So I would just say like, believe in that people power, believe in those abilities. If you're in the Clark County or Washington area, we do have the power of the ballot. How's our neighbors is here to like help consult if needed, but you all are so knowledgeable. Everyone is knowledgeable about their area. Just know that there will be people in power. There will be people in institutions that will try to tell you that they already do social housing or that they already do mixed income or that this is duplicative. Know that those are arguments of fear or they're bad faith and reach out and we can talk about that. But Chris, thank you so much. I appreciate, I love talking about this so much and uh, i hope that you all get something started down there very cool thank you so much tiffany and yeah you guys are just such an inspiration um and it's awesome to know that we have a lifeline if we if we uh have questions or need a little yes. help thank you so much for taking the time absolutely thank you carissa <laughs>
up from our hats to our shoes You mistreat a poor dog long enough Don't be shocked when she snaps and turns her teeth on you Shock when she snaps and turns her teeth on